starting an organization or plan to be when you leave the Kennedy School? And are these mostly nonprofit? What kind of organizations are these? Heidi wants to raise her hand. Who wants to shout out? Nonprofits? Nonprofit. Okay. How many of you blog right now? Not right now. <laughs> How many of you are on Twitter? Sort of. I'm assuming everyone's on Facebook. Um, 
How many of you have run digital teams as part of your job portfolio in the past? That's really helpful. Thank you. That just gives us a gauge, um, a gauge here. And um, I'm going to hand this over to Nicole. But what we're going to do tonight is really focus on something that uh, that I, as someone who's been in this business for a while, think gets short shrift every day. And this is really using your web presence as your brand ambassador. Especially in the digital age, your online presence is your brand. I mean, we all watch Mad Men and we see how it felt easy back then. You could buy a newspaper ad or a TV spot and you could reach so many people. And it's not like that anymore. People are online looking for information and that is where they meet you, whether that's your nonprofit, you're managing a candidate, you are a candidate, you're running a company. So it's really important to think of your digital presence as the front lines of where people are getting to know you. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, and of course, we've all seen this a million times. A lot of us uh, in the internet, uh, marketing and political intriguing of this is the moment when the web grew up, you know, when the web really finally got a seat at the grown-ups table in terms of strategy. Um, and I think that that's for very particular reasons. Well, first of all, we know that the web is an interactive medium. It's about us, it's about the candidate, and it's about how we come together and talk to each other. Um, and when you look at this site, that's the first thing Obama tells you. This isn't about me. This is about you. This is about our election. What does that mean? And this was his brand. And this is how he encountered us every single day on the internet, internet, no matter where we met him. This is a splash page before you hit his website. If we followed his Twitter feed, if we saw him on YouTube, if we followed him on Facebook, that was his message. This is about us. We can change the country. He had an incredibly consistent, well-managed brand, and he used the web to market the hell out of it. So we're going to talk a little bit about how you can set that up, how you get your message across, and then we're going to talk about some channels and tactics that yeah, you can use. Yeah, today I've from them, like Michelle Obama needs you. Mm -hmm. You need your help. Yeah. She needs us. <laughs> well, in truth, the Obama campaign was super tightly managed. Not very easy access. I mean, if you wanted a real grassroots campaign, you had to look at Ron Paul. But we thought Obama was about us because he was so effective. <coughs> at getting his message across and using those channels. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Nicole. So um, welcome to all of you. I'm glad to see such a room on a cold rainy night. And thank you for having us. I'm, um, I'm a Bostonian, and I live in DC now. And um, it conveniently invited us to, to speak on today, which is my dad's 65th birthday. So I had to get to come home, talk to you guys, see him, and celebrate with him. So thank you. I'm really excited to be here and um, look forward to talking to anybody after. If you have any other questions, I can answer. Um, so I just want to go through how um, tonight's going to proceed. We're going to start with something that may not seem intuitive for a digital presentation, which is really just talking about branding and establishing your brand. Um, Nice to see that a lot of hands went up, went up when we asked about who's planning on starting an organization. And we don't think we can sort of do justice to this topic if you're actually planning on launching an organization or campaign without really talking about how to establish a strong brand. And then we'll actually move from there into the part that Maura will really take over, which is about translating that brand into your digital presence. Um, so I just want to kind of open this with a little bit of thinking about the environment you're currently in and sort of what we're up against. And there's two concepts I want to focus on specifically. And the first is just 
something you, you've all experienced and know a lot about, and that's just the idea of information overload. The fact that we all exist in a world where there's constant streams of information coming up more than ever before, more content being created now than any moment before in history, growing rapidly. Um, and so we've moved from this mode of being seekers to what we think of now as being sifters. So we used to sort of go, we had, we had a question, we sought out information, and what we now have is so much information that we have a question, and we go to find it, and we end up having to spend our time sifting through to find the right answer, not an answer, right? And that's kind of a big shift um, that's happened over time. The other thing to keep in mind is because of this, people have um, what, what I refer to as compassion fatigue. Um, there's a lot of people competing for, you know, every nonprofit thinks that their thing is the most important, and I understand that because I've worked in the nonprofit sector, but there's a lot of people always competing for, um, for your heart, I guess, really. And you have to keep in mind that people actually have fatigue, so just because you give them a compelling, a, a compelling you know, pitch doesn't always mean that that's, that's enough. Um, you know, people have a lot to worry about and they don't want one more big thing. And, and these all sound simple, but I think they're important things to think about when you think about launching and putting something new into the world. Um, and if you just think about content in general and how much content we all consume, one, one stat I sort of like is this idea that just on a Sunday, if, you're, if you were to read the Sunday New York Times cover to cover, it's 500,000 words. That would take most people about 28 hours. So that's one thing that a lot of people probably in this room might look at on a Sunday, and that's a 28-hour proposition where you try to take on consuming all of that. Um, the second thing I want to talk about briefly, um, which is the concept to think about uh, that I think is relevant to everything we're going to talk about tonight, is the idea of the curse of knowledge. And that's essentially a concept that um, you've probably all experienced before, and it's basically the idea that once you know something, it's almost impossible to imagine what it's like not to know it. Um, another way to think of it is sort of organizational myopia, and you've seen this a million times, you know, organizations, you get so caught in the weeds of what you're doing that it's very easy to forget that what you think about, what you care about, doesn't have any intrinsic relevance or importance to anybody else. And again, this is sort of a simple point, but I have to say, having worked in a firm for a lot of years, specialized in, in public interest communications and just worked with nonprofits, you'd be amazed how often people forget that People don't know what you're talking about when you just launch into the, the specifics. You have to give people a big picture view first, and you have to realize that people are often starting from zero. Um, so, you know, the reason I think, the reason I want to talk about this concept as a backdrop to this conversation tonight is it's critical when you're thinking about launching a new organization or, or a campaign that, that you sort of remember always that people are, are not only overwhelmed by constant flows of information on a daily basis, so you're fighting for their precious time and the real estate in their mind, but you know something of obvious importance to you may be nothing to them at first. Um, so why start our presentation talking about branding? Again, you came for a presentation on social media. Is this false advertising? We're now selling you branding. Well, I just want to begin with sort of an anecdote, and that is that um, when I worked again at, at Fenton, a lot of organizations would come to me and say, hey, um, we're here because we need a social media strategy. Can you help us with that? We need to create a Facebook and Twitter account. And I'd say, great, um, okay, so why do you need those? And they'd say, because we need a social media strategy. And it'd be like, right, so why do you need that? Well, we need the Facebook and the Twitter. You know? <laughs> okay, so why? So it becomes kind of cyclical. And um, I just want to sort of start this by <coughs> framing how you're thinking about social media maybe a little bit. 
So the point is, social media isn't actually a solution. It's a tool that can be deployed strategically that's in support of your larger goals, right? It's an empty vessel, and you fill it with whatever you're going to fill it with. Um, and, and if you don't have a good idea, and a good idea that you can translate into a memorable brand, then you know a brilliant social media strategy is not going to compensate for that. So I would say the big picture question you should be asking yourself tonight is, you know, what's your campaign or organization trying to do, and how can social media help you accomplish that? Not the other way around. So <coughs> talking about branding, so I guess a little primer: what's a brand? You know, a brand is the collection of ideas and images and expectations and associations that are connected to either an organization or a product or a service, or in the case of the you know photos I've chosen. Um, political campaigns. Um, it expresses, the brand is something that expresses basically the, uh, the core values of an organization or an issue or, or in this case again a, a campaign or a person. And what it has to do and what the most important thing for it to do is um, to differentiate you um, and to articulate your unique benefits. So how do you differentiate yourself from your, from your peers and your competitors? And what I find actually sort of funny about this is that Working almost exclusively with nonprofits over the past few years, nonprofits see um, understanding their their unique benefit or sort of in the business lexicon their competitive advantage is less important because they think there's sort of altruism and people just come to them. It's actually more important, I would argue, because you're competing for thought leadership, you're competing for donor dollars. It's often a busier space. So, you know, I, I would just say for people thinking about launching nonprofits. How you do what you do differently than other people in your field is probably more important than if you were to be hawking a product, basically. Um, and I just want to point out again with this slide that brands aren't just for consumer products. And I, I, you know, for better or worse, uh, campaigns and organizations need good brands to survive. And I, I found that this is a sort of controversial um, <coughs> idea for people because I think, obviously. Um, People don't want to think of the consequence of what brand of toilet paper they choose as, as equal to the consequence of, of who they decide to vote for in an election. And clearly, I understand that and sympathize with that. The consequences are totally differently. The point, however, is that ultimately, the same basic cognitive principles underlie how we make a choice about a consumer product and how we make a choice about a candidate for its, um, its a gut level emotional response that you have to, to somebody's brand, to something's brand. So, this is just a, a good way to say, sort of look at these, you know, look at these guys again and think of think of their public brands. Like, I'm, I'm sure you can describe the essence of their brands, of the Obama brand and the Hillary Clinton brand and the Sarah Palin brand, without saying a single word about anything to do with their policy positions, right? And, um, you know, in, in many cases you have very different feelings about the brand of politicians who have almost exactly the same policy positions. That's another sort of good thing to note. Um, so, you know, one way to boil down the concept of, of, of what a brand is, is a brand, a brand makes you a promise. So the question is, you know, when you think about this, what promise is your brand making to your audience? And this is an example I think sort of hits the point home. And again, people, you know, this is always a funny thing. I studied, I was a political communications person. People I was like, oh, this is, this is ice cream. How is that relevant? Well. I personally, I think this hits a point home because think about the experience of you know um, of walking in. You're you're hungry and you're craving ice cream. You walk into 
into a supermarket and you go into the frozen food aisle and you look at these two ice creams sitting next to each other. Um, you know, brands have personalities that speak to people's desires and, and their, their values. So, so these probably have almost exactly the same ingredients. If somebody gave you a bowl of each of them and put in front of you and said, taste them, you'd probably, they both satisfy your craving, right? But do you, I mean, do you spend the time when you look at these looking at nutritional labels and reading what's in them, or do you just say, sort of on a gut level, what am I feeling like, which is more like me? I would say you, you obviously do that, and you know, when you're, if it's these two, you're saying, you know, am I in the mood to like, dust off my china and, and treat myself to a gourmet dessert, or am I gonna like dig directly in with like a plastic spoon in the car on the way home? Um, you know, am I carefree and young and funky, or am I like, elegant and fancy and like self-indulgent. That's that's the choice you're making here. It's really not about ice cream, ultimately. It's about the brand and what how this, these ice creams have been branded. So, um, you know, again, there's a lot of, I get a lot of objection from people like, but this is so different than, than, than how I think about, you know, what issue to support or what candidate to support. I hate to tell you, it's not that different. It's different, again, in consequence. It's not just that different in terms of the way we make those choices. And if you really think about it, there's a lot of political races where really one candidate becomes sort of the elitist candidate, and one candidate sort of the candidate of the people. Cognitively, again, not all that different from am I buying the generic brand tonight or am I buying the thing that's indulgent and fancy and elitist? It's, it's, it's ultimately kind of the same, the same idea. And that's, that's a triumph of a strong brand, essentially. So, oh, well, these were supposed to come up so you could guess, but okay. So um, the must-have is a brand promise. So it has to respond to a need or a problem. That's sort of the, the duh moment, right? If nobody thinks that there's any need or there's any problem, you're, what you're putting into the marketplace probably isn't going to have all that much value. Um, again, one of the most important things that has to do is differentiate you from your competition. So, um, you know, there's a lot of cars to buy. Why are you going to buy a Prius versus a Mercedes-Benz? You are environmentalist. Why are you going to support Greenpeace versus the World Wildlife Fund? You're pro-choice. Why do you give to Planned Parenthood versus NARAL? These are all, a, a brand has to tell you why you should give to one versus the other. And again, sometimes essentially what they're selling isn't all that different, but they have different brands associated with it that sort of draw you in. Um, and the third, the third piece here, the sort of simple to understand, this is without a doubt, in my personal experience, the hardest for organizations. You know, we think what we do is all very complicated and it's very hard to boil down. Um, but I just want to remind people when you're talking about branding, yes, your brand has to be, you know, the, a brand promise has to be simple and compact and easy to understand. It has to be something you can say easily in a quick elevator pitch. It has to be something your audience or your customers can talk about. But we're not talking about oversimplifying what your organization does. You can still have the same meetings in your boardrooms. You can still have you know, the same high-level discussions. But the promise you're making to people has to be simple and easier. That's, that's sort of the point. And um, it's like Netflix for voting. Really? Yeah, an analogy there actually. But, um, and then again, people respond more, um, more, emotion, more to, to emotional uh, anecdotes than they do to, to facts, and this is, I'm sure, not the first time um, you've heard that. So you should really capitalize on that knowledge. It's, it's sad, but it's true. It's the reason you know that good policy positions don't always win. Um, and this is just an example of, of brand promises of different organizations. Again, for-profits, you know, a campaign, 
FedEx makes you one brand promise. You can talk, you can tell the brand promise of FedEx in one sentence. It'll get your package there overnight. You can tell Volvo people when people think about the promise Volvo makes. It's one thing: it's safety. But you think of keeping your kids safe. You think if I get in an accident with my family, will they be safe? That is why you buy a Volvo. And why do you vote? Why did you vote in 2008 for Obama? Because you wanted to change the direction of the company, of the, com of the company, <laughs> of the country. That's that's the promise that the campaign made to you. So we're going to move, and you know, as you can see, those are straight. They're 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 really simple and straightforward. And I'll say, simple and straightforward in my experience, being both on the academic side of things and writing big academic papers, and then working in like, you know, working for organizations doing branding for them. Simple and straightforward is about ten times harder than long and wordy. It's really, really hard to boil down something's essence. So, when you sort of give these speeches, and it seems obvious. It's the, it's probably the hardest thing for most people to do. So we're going to talk a lot about um, messages, and more particularly, is going to talk in a minute about um, sort of how you take your messages online. Um, but just want to give you an overview here. Um, you know, messages are the external expression of your brand, essentially. Um, and obviously we could teach a whole course in this and I'm happy to answer more questions. This is just sort of an overview uh, for, for some top line rules. But the most important um, and the most effective messages basically um, draw on shared values and beliefs of your target audience. And we, we've, given, we've given audiences sort of short trips so far and that's obviously a huge part of, of branding is like knowing who you're talking to and knowing your audience. But, um, you know, human beings make sense of the world based on sort of our own frames of reference and sort of to know, um, to get people where you want them to go, you sort of already have to know where they are, obviously. That's just another way of saying know your audience because if you're not crafting messages that resonate with them, they're not going to get anywhere. And one example I love um, is the don't mess with Texas example. I'm sure you guys have all heard this phrase. I don't, what, I, what I've realized a lot of people don't know is this is actually a campaign to reduce littering on highways in Texas. Did you all know that? Have you heard of this one? Okay. Well, it's amazing how many people have heard the phrase and have just think it's like something Texans say that has sort of no other, <laughs> no particular meaning. But it's sort of an interesting story from a branding perspective because the campaign had this big, you know, it, they were trying to get, there was a big littering problem along Texas highways and they hired and had uh, agency and they, they did research on who was doing the littering and they found out that the littering was being done almost like 90% of it was men between the ages of 15 and 24. They <laughs> like to drink, they like to party, they didn't have a lot of <laughs> sort of thought casually tossing something out a window. And so they came up with a campaign <clears throat> message that spoke to sort of coolness and machismo. They were like, we need something kind of macho and cool. And they came up with don't mess with Texas that, you know, had a double meaning. Don't you know, mess with, don't, <coughs> and it was sort of macho. And it was actually an astoundingly effective campaign. They reduced littering in Texas like 30% the first year they instituted it. And, um, you know, I just think it's a really, it's funny to look at that and imagine, like, what if they had put those signs up everywhere and said, please don't litter? <laughs> would that have done anything? Like, what, what, what would have been the success right there? I would, I would imagine it wouldn't have been very successful just because they knew how to they knew who they were speaking to, and they spoke to that audience very effectively. And this, I love this sort of 92, it's the economy stupid, which is a Carville phrase, I'm sure you all know. Um, if the economy stupid wasn't the external message, it was sort of the internal guiding <laughs> message, you all know this. But what's just useful to think about, again, is how much campaigns boil down to sort of one message and one idea. 
so much of the, the messaging for the, that 92 campaign was just about focusing on the economy, like laser focus. And this is, again, this is a reminder that for all, they're, they're, they started off, by the way, you know, with three, Carvel had sort of three platforms they had to talk about. They basically made it all about one, and that's really all people remember is this one. We're not, you don't study this. And again, just a good reminder of the potency and the power of like one strong message. Um, you want to take it? Sure. <coughs> oh, yeah. hmm. um, and I think the other thing to think about when you think of a, a visual perspective or marketing is that both of these could be ads. They could be online ads that you probably click on, right? Yeah. Okay. So, Sarah. Um, <laughs> no matter what you think about Sarah Palin politically, I would argue that she is um, the, one of the few popular figures in politics right now who really uses social media to its full advantage as a marketing medium. Um, the web is a really visual medium, and people don't really read online. They're hit with a visual impact, and then they scan. And so this is a splash page that you get when you go to Sarah Pack, her Pack website, and it's visually beautiful, and it calls in everything that, that is Sarah. There's no flag on it, actually. I'm surprised. But um, <laughs> it's her looking beautiful. It's a little bit of Alaska. It's America. You get the kind of visual place where she's coming from. And her messaging is very, very consistent. It's similar to her stump speech. If you scan the words in it, it's probably the same use of words that you hear if she were out on the stump. And she translates this across every medium. If you go to her Facebook page, if you go to her Twitter profile, if you watch her videos on YouTube, and if you watch her ads and go see her at a rally, it's all going to sound the same and look roughly the same. And that's the brilliance of what she does, is that she's very consistent and she uses social media in a very consistent way with everything else. My experience working with clients over the years, and especially in, in this new world of social media where things change so quickly, is that from an organizational perspective, people invest a ton up top. They hire an expensive branding agency, they hire an expensive ad agency, they hire an expensive PR agency, and all of the senior executives are at the table making those decisions. And then when it comes to posting on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, they have an intern do it. Right? I mean, have you ever experienced this? It's a very discombobulated experience. And as a result, things are very, very discombobulated feeling. And you can't have that anymore. You need to have people who meet you on Facebook have the same experience as people who meet you through a television ad. That's really, really important. So when you're setting up your organization, when you're thinking about your general presence, you need to think, I'm going to be consistent across all my channels, and I'm going to value my channels equally. Especially because very few of us can afford TV spots, right? It's very much cheaper to reach people online. So Sarah Palin is really a great case study on how to use the web as an effective marketing uh, medium. And of course, she really understands social media. At the bottom of her splash page, I've reached two, th two million likes on Facebook support her today. And that support her link doesn't go to a donate to Sarah link, it goes to her Facebook link. So she's immediately driving you to get two million and one likes. Um, I don't know if you guys can see this. It's a little bit small. Uh, but I'm happy to, to stand up and discuss it. But when I'm setting up a campaign for a client, a social media campaign, and I do this in my business for everyone from Procter & Gamble to the American Cancer Society to startups, and it's, it's kind of a similar formula, and you don't have to use it, but I thought I'd share it with you. 
is because um, I find it helpful, especially when you're trying to sell things into a board or trying to get budget for your campaign. That's always a factor, even still, when you have, when you run a marketing and internet program. Is how can I get people to give me budget for this, or how can I get donors to give me budget to invest in this medium? I like to think of my content as a big platform. And so this is everything from my policy papers to my video. It's the meat of what I do, turned into written or visual form. That's my content. And I'm going to use that content everywhere as much as I possibly can, because that's what my organization is. So for example, if you're setting up a new nonprofit, this is the programs that you're running. You know, you're in 50 different sites around the country, and here's a bunch of video and a bunch of information and articles talking about what I do. That's my content. That's how I'm going to reach people. Maybe I have some ads that I've developed. Maybe I have some articles that I've placed. How am I going to use this to reach different audiences? And the great thing about social media is that it can be broken up by channels that then you can think about using to reach different audiences. So for example, email is a channel. Your email marketing program is a channel to reach people who opt in to subscribe to you. Twitter is a great channel. <coughs> These are almost all free. Search is a channel. Google is a way to reach people who are looking to learn about you. Mobile, text messaging, having some kind of text messaging program is a channel. Facebook, channel. Online ads, channel. Facebook ads are a very, very cheap way to reach people, and you can target the heck out of them. YouTube, another channel. Even events, how I'm going to use the internet to get people out and support me. Influencers, and I think about online influencers as a key, key part of setting up an organization. This could be bloggers who are writing about things that are relevant to you. This could be the person who is commenting on your YouTube channel. Who are the people who care about what I do and care about what I say online? And you should know them. Actually, that's one of the first things that you should do when you start an organization. Say you're starting um, a school reform project in Medford, Massachusetts. Who are the five local bloggers who care about this stuff? What are their Twitter handles? What are their websites? Who do they know? What do they write every day? Who do they hate? Who do they love? And what media pick them up? And you should absolutely be obsessed with them because they are going to be your initial audience for getting the word out. So I say to any client who I start working with, who are your immediate influencers and you should know them. Have lunch with them. Um, and then partner organizations. If you're going to work with other organizations, if you're going to use their email address, their email address books, whatever, you should know them. So I just think that's a pretty helpful framework, which is I have all this content. I'm not going to recreate new content for every marketing effort I do. I'm going to use it in different ways across social media channels. Anybody have any questions about this? And your website is really your baseline. It's kind of your ground zero for all your content. It should house all your content, and you should keep it updated, but you can also think of fresh ways to use your content and get it out to new audiences. Your content's pur purpose is really part of your brand. You're delivering on that brand promise. So whether it's your blog, whether it's video you've created, whether it's policy papers, whether it's news, it should all deliver on that message of who I am and why you should care about me. It should also ask how I can get involved. Again, we saw with that Obama page. His message when you hit him is, come get involved with me which is really crucial from an operational perspective for him, but it's also a key part of his marketing message. This is about us. 
what we're doing and why it's so crucial. Again, speaking to what Nicole was talking about, you may care about your organization and think that it is absolutely the key to solving a major world crisis, but other people aren't going to unless you tell them why. So it's really important when people hit your website right away that they know why you're there and why, why it matters. And who pays the bills. This is really, really important. I, I also forgot to add um, how to contact us. Um, that's not sexy, but you'd be surprised how many websites people set up and you can't find out how to contact anyone. And so if I'm the New York Times and I want to write a story about you and I'm on your website and I can't find a media contact, I'm going to be royally annoyed. <laughs> so just remember that. You know, your website story. Sorry? You just dropped the story. Right. Or if I'm a donor, you know, and I'm a big dollar donor and I don't feel like using a web form and I can't find somebody to call or email to write a chat, you know, you think practically about your website too. Have I covered all of these bases? I put who pays the bills though because especially um, in the nonprofit space and in the era of Citizens United and all of these fun grass tops groups, um, which I, Washington, have set up a few myself and I'm sure you too, um, it's really important for, sorry, um, it's really important for people who, who want to learn more about you that they know where you come from. So if you're a nonprofit, um, you know, where do you get your funding from, if you're a political organization, who supports you, what's your orientation, and you should have that on your website. So your website is your platform, you want to put your content on it, you want to really, really organize it well. It's really important, I think, even if you don't have a lot of money, to invest in a decent graphic design, but also to think really practically about how people are going to use your website. Don't make it gorgeous and sacrifice utility, because really what your site is about is about utility. It's about all these things. Oh, so there's kind of, you know, I'm, I barely know how to create a website myself. You know, I, I know the basics, I'm relatively technologically savvy, but I don't do, you know, I don't build websites. So there's kind of, you know, my, the ideas about what I want for my website, but that almost has to be kind of outsourced to somebody else who's actually going to create that. So, I mean, would you recommend learning more about creating websites? Is that an important part of like this process? Or do I just need to understand what I want it to accomplish? Well, it all depends on your budget and your time and where you are in your life. I mean, uh, personally, I think your time as head of an organization is better spent elsewhere. And sure. let's face it, website building, although my husband owns a company that does it, is a commoditized business these days. Um, you know, there's a lot of free tools that with a little bit of customization, you can get the job done. So my personal answer is you'd be much better off going out fundraising to get the money to pay for 10 websites and outsourcing it. Unless, you, unless you're that kind of person who really likes to know things. I'm not a person. Um, so, but I do think it's really important to know enough not to get sold down the river. Because anytime you've worked with a vendor, you know that they may come in and sell you and all of a sudden you have something that's gorgeous and it doesn't work. Our first website on the Carry campaign was exactly that. It was so beautiful. And then we launched it, and it was like, oh my god, we have nowhere to put our campaign events every day. <laughs> I, I've been through that a lot. It, so you know, don't sacrifice utility for something that's really fancy. Um, along those lines, I had two questions. One, your previous uh, slide mm -hmm. had a lot of channels. And I wonder, when you're talking about a startup social enterprise, 
what are the, you know, what would you say are the three, the top three channels to target? Um, balancing diversification, but also something that's pretty user friendly. And then my second question is, what would you say is um, a reasonable percentage of, of a sort of enterprise's budget, percentage, right, not nominal right, right. to spend on social media? Okay. Um, well, the first one is, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, is I think it, this is when it really does come to audience who you really want to reach and what your targets are for your organization, say it's the first year. If your targets are um, media coverage, word of mouth, and publicity, that's going to be very different than if you want to get $5 million in foundation funding. Although not necessarily, honestly. Um, if you're reaching a youth market towards mobilization, you might invest in different channels than if you're trying to reach moms in their 30s. So I'm going to talk about this in a sec. I think it bears, it's worth doing a little bit of research and thinking about your demographics. That said, in this day and age, um, I think you have to be on Facebook. And why not be, right? Um, and I'm a big fan of Twitter for reaching influencers and media. Um, and again, why not be? Um, and email. <laughs> and we'll talk about why. But that's a hard, you know, again, you really have to think about where do I want to be in the year and who do I want to move? Some organizations, you know, I have a client that's a giant nonprofit and they said to me, we don't care about fundraising this year. We want to increase, increase people's love of our organization. Oh my God, how do I use social media to increase people's love of this 100 year old organization? Whereas some organizations might say to me, I just want to raise a lot of money. I just, I want an article in the New York Times. So again, it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all answer. But think about your goals and do the demographic research and look around. The second part, again, it depends how you're staffed and how much you're outsourcing. Um, I think that my personal view, and I get paid to do this, is that it's really, really important. You cannot give it short shrift. This is where people are going to meet you these days. And when you look at cost, I mean, unless you have a very labor-intensive program, if you're in field, if you're in schools, 100 schools, and you've got to get teachers in schools, and cutting your social media budget is going to you know, prevent you getting teachers in schools, that's a hard calculus. But when it comes to setting up your marketing and your fundraising budget, it's absolutely important to invest. Um, it's really hard to give a percentage, but I think it has to be of your marketing budget or your total operating budget. Operating budget. I would, I would, I would look at your marketing budget and your publicity budget. I think a lot of budget. social enterprises will probably be on these as their sole yeah. marketing channel. So that's I think it is your sole marketing channel. You're not going to be buying ads. You're not going to be, you know, I would certainly, if it comes to hiring a really expensive PR firm and investing in this, I would invest in this. Because it will do the same. It will do the same. It's really hard for me to be okay. I think at least 30 to 50 percent. Certainly a lot of your marketing budget. Don't quote me on that, though. Okay. <laughs> um, the most important thing to remember, though, is that you really want a good website, but the truth is most people aren't going to come back to your site every day. They're not even going to come back voluntarily. The only sites we go to voluntarily every day are the sites that we need to get basic things done. So we might go to Yahoo Finance every day to check our, our stocks, and we're going to go to a sports site, and we might go to Google, and we might go to our, our kids' site so we can see what's for lunch. But 
or school site, but we're not going to go to your nonprofit site every single day. And when I have a client who says, I want this to be the go-to destination for all things environmental news, I'm sorry, that's already taken up by Grist. So you should invest your money thinking how to get on Grist.org, which is a big blog, or Treehugger, and not how to drive tons and tons of traffic to my site. It just makes sense. Why try to compete with the big guys? Get your content out there, get people talking about it, get syndicated, and be where they are. So how can you use your channels to get your message out? Just to overview this real quick, and unfortunately we can't cover everything, so I'm just going to touch on stuff, and if you want to come back later, we can talk. Um, I think search engine visibility is absolutely huge, because when you think about it, people use the web to get to know someone. Whether you're a candidate, an organization, a product, if I'm with Nicole at a bar and I say, oh my gosh, there's, there's this new shampoo, it's changed my entire hair, she's, she's going to go look it up. She's going to Google it. She is. <laughs> so it's really important that when I Google that shampoo, something good comes up. It's really important to have a presence on the major platforms and networks where your audience is going to go. And it's really, really important to start building the relationship, but we're going to focus on that because I think that that's often overlooked. It's really important to use these social media channels for news and rapid response. Twitter, again, we're going to talk about hugely important for reaching media. So question is, if you're an organization in a rural area where like the social media network doesn't work, how are you going to integrate uh, the local TV channels or maybe the mobile? Can they be integrated with the social media? Some there, and I mean, that's really hard. Again, I mean, is mobile, is there a penetration of mobile if people aren't um, on social media channels? You have to know your specific case and apply the channels, right? It's like, it's like going to a doctor, a general practitioner versus going to a specialist. You have a specialist situation in a rural area where there isn't big broadband adoption, where people aren't on their iPhones or their iPads every day, and so you need to think about that situation look at how people do access information, maybe use social media to target the press, like you mentioned, because maybe the press is online all the time, have a trickle-down effect rather than a trickle-up effect. You know, when we're all sitting here with our devices, it's very easy to get information out across channels and then hope it trickles up to elites like media who are going to cover you. You may have to take the opposite approach. How do I reach the media elite who are online? Sorry, I'm trying to say media elite, I feel guilty. Um, how do I reach the media elite who are online and then hope it trickles down? Are they on mobile? Where are people? I'm not an expert in that, but look it up. The internet is a wealth of information. Um, okay, so news and rapid response. How am I going to use my channels to get the word out really quickly? Think about Haiti when Haiti happened. That was an incredible example of people using all the different social media channels to reach people. Everything from mobile to Twitter to direct email appeals. It all <coughs> globalization, and then how do I use it for niche marketing? How do I use it to build relationships with those people who are going to do my work for me because I don't have a big budget? There are case study after case study of groups and nonprofits and companies that don't have a big budget, but because people who are influential online love them, they break through. So how can I be that organization? Who do I need to know online, on Twitter? Who are the bloggers I need to know? What are the conferences these people go to? that they get to know me and they love me, so they do my job for me. Um, just a quick example from search. 
Search takes time to really build a presence in. Um, it's something that you should really have an honest conversation with whoever does run your website, and you should learn about that is kind of worth knowing. Is the platform that I'm going to use going to help me in search? You can just read some articles online. If I have a very kind of um, visual and flash-heavy website, is that going to hurt me in search? Those are the questions that the head of the organization should be aware of, because search is absolutely crucial, especially when you're starting out. And I pulled the example of Nikki Saunders, who's running near us for Congress. I think she has actually a very good presence in Google, because if you look at her top five examples, they're all about her, which is fabulous. They're not about her opponent or how bad she is. Your Wikipedia page, you should also start a Wikipedia page, by the way. I forgot that, but that's, again, kind of a no-brainer, low-hanging fruit. Um, her Wikipedia page is there at number five. Her official house site are the first two returns. And then her campaign site are the next. And it's really great. Here's what she's doing. She's, um, she's running, she's doing all this stuff, and here's how I can meet her. So she's done probably a good job in putting out content, fresh content, and managing her web program so that when I Google Nikki Saunders Congress, I'm not hit with all this nasty stuff about her. However, if someone on her campaign is not paying attention because there's an opponent's ad, and that ad probably costs 25 cents a click, so it's really cheap because you only pay for a Google ad when someone clicks on it. You can do it all yourself with your credit card. So someone from the middleclass.org, which I looked it up, is actually a grass tops group, God knows who pays for them, has bought an ad opposing her. So monitor your Google page ruthlessly. You'd have to outbid them, to be honest. It's an auction system, and so um, you'd have to have a pretty relevant ad and outbid them. But it's pretty doable, depending on how smart they are. This comes back to your question. When you're looking at where to invest your social media dollars and effort, Look at the demographic at who's, demographics at who's on the major sites. And I just pulled these three. All of this information is available for free online. I think this is from Quantcast, but I found it on SlideShare, which is a great research, a great resource, by the way, for doing research. So if you look at the demographics of Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, you can ask yourself all kinds of basic questions, and then you can think, where do I need to be? Um, for example, <coughs> Twitter skews 54% female. So does Facebook. LinkedIn skews 57% male. Now, they're not exactly apples and oranges. I'd argue you'd want to be on all three. But if you have a very female approach and you want to target women, you might invest differently than if you want to target men. Same as age. So LinkedIn is probably quite a bit older of an audience um, than Facebook is. You can look at household income. You can just really apply a bunch of different um, demographic analyses to think about where to put your effort <coughs> and your money. And like I say, all this stuff's available for free online, so you can just spend some time doing around. Let's just talk quickly about email. Um, I think it was Cheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, who said email was dead at a conference recently, and everyone in the social media world got all upset, like, oh my god, I have this huge email marketing program. I don't think if you're a nonprofit or if you're a company or if you're a candidate, email is dead. Email is very, very important, and you should use every opportunity to collect an email address. This is the splash page, which is um, the most popular approach to getting people to get your email. When you hit a website, it's what you get served before you even go to the home page. It's called the splash page. And the reason why these are so successful is because they're very visual. They're pretty. And they capture the personality of the experience you're about to have. 
So this is Senator Gillibrand's splash page. You know, she's got her upstate New York roots, but she's from New York to capture those downstate donors. She's a young woman. She kind of captures her visual appeal. I think email is so, so important. It's really worth investing in. And um, when you're starting a website, you can either get a program that bakes in bulk email, or you can use one of many kind of low-cost systems to build it in, and your web person should be able to integrate that into the back end for you. And that's really all you need to know, is that you need to have it, and you need to have someone who can help you set it up. You should collect email every chance you get on your website, clearly, at events, all posters and marketing materials. I mean, you would be shocked at how many, especially in politics, candidates go out with materials and they don't put their URL and materials. You know, you want to be thinking, how can I drive people back to my site to build an email list? Because it's still the best way to guarantee that people will hear from I also, for a small organization, I like Google Groups. Listservs are really powerful. A lot of small organizations or local organizations will start a Google group, which is an opt-in email group run by Google where people can have kind of private conversations. They can um, manage their flow. So think about a Google group. And again, excuse me, these are just some examples of small email vendors. They're all about like 20 to 30 bucks a month for a small volume where you can manage your bulk email system. But it's really worth investing. Just talk quickly about Twitter. Um, I, I like to think of Twitter when I think about working with clients as a way to reach influentials in media. Most media members are on Twitter, and um, bloggers in key markets are always on Twitter. People who like to think that they have an opinion worth sharing are on Twitter. So again, when you're thinking about who do I need to reach and how do I make them know me and like me, you should really spend some time searching on Twitter and figuring out who writes about your issues. So for example, I just did a um, project with a client that we wanted to reach boomers. We wanted to reach baby boomers, people who write about baby boomers, media whose beat is baby boomers. And I literally just typed into Twitter, hashtag boomers. And I probably found 100 people who tweet every day about boomers. And then I had a list of people that I could instantly reach and influence. It was fabulous. Um, and so Harry Reid actually, I think, does a really nice job with his Twitter, Twitter because it's very interactive. He talks about local Nevada stuff. He um, goes back to his platform, his website, so he'll drive people back to his videos, he'll drive people back to his press releases, but he'll also give love to other people in Nevada. He's very, he shares the wealth. Um, and the other thing about Twitter that's really funny is it's kind of like high school. Mm -hmm. And it's always good to have more people following you than you follow. So when you're thinking about starting to tweet, be judicious in who you follow. And be interesting. And give people love back. Think of yourself as a host of a cocktail party. You want to acknowledge all the interesting things that people in the room are saying. Don't just be constantly talking. Wow, Nicole, whatever Nicole's Twitter handle is, wrote this amazing blog post and linked to it. Because then Nicole will like you better. And she'll be more inclined to promote you, because that's just human nature. And that goes for blogging, that goes for Facebook. Social media is very reciprocal. It's all about building relationships. And then Libby Mitchell, who's running um, for governor in Maine, who is really a fabulous, funny woman with a great personality, has absolutely the worst Twitter page, because all she does is blast out her press releases. And she doesn't think of it as this cocktail party. She doesn't try to build relationships. And she just sends out information. And she's not cultivating the people in Maine 
who will know her and like her. Um, I'm going to finish here just talking a little bit about how to use web activism, how to use web activism to build your relationships. And this is a little case study that happened with me this summer. Um, I'm part of a big network of women progressive bloggers. We work really hard to get other women elected. We don't care where you live. It's just part of our credo. And we organize via blogs. We all follow each other on Twitter. We're on listservs, and we support each other. Again, it's all about what is that network of influencers that's really going to make my organization take off. And so a friend who um, is supporting two female progressive candidates for the Texas State Board of Education had a problem. He wanted them. They wanted to go to Netroots Nation, which is this big uh, grassroots conference, and they didn't have the money to get there. So what did he do? He emailed, tweeted, blogged, and tried to reach out to everyone he knew in social media. But if you just gave a little bit of money, he set up his free fundraising page on ActBlue, which if you're running a candidate is a great way to um, get great online fundraising for very little money. Can you give us just a little bit of money to get our candidates to Netroots Nation? He used his online networks. And sure enough, I donated, and then I tweeted, join me in supporting Send the Texas State Board of Education candidates to Netroots Nation. And then I tagged a couple of really influential women bloggers in my network who all have a lot of big readerships because I knew that they would care and they would send it out to their Twitter lists. And they raised money and they all got to go. <coughs> and I just tell you this little parable as a way of really stressing that no matter what your social media tactics are, you should always come back to relationships and, and interactions and how I'm reaching people and what they think of me and why they should care. It's really important and it's something that we could never do before the internet. I mean, I can literally go on Twitter, tag a couple people and start a wave. It's an amazing, amazing feeling of power and you should never forget that. And this is just a slide from the friend who um, did the Texas State Board of Ed campaign and, and, and I just want you to remember that it's still about retail politics if you're starting an organization, it's still about meeting people and getting them to care about you. You're just using social media as your channel. You cultivate a list, whether it's a Twitter list or it's your email list. This is your source of power. You can reach these people instantly. And you want to use networks because ultimately social networks allow you to reach a lot of people very quickly, which is, uses your most precious resource, which is time. Real quick, this is a trend that I think is really interesting, and I'm just throwing this out here as food for thought, which is using online tools to take it offline. And I just flagged this because I think it's really cool, and it's what I see happening in terms of online, online fundraising and online politics and online activism. So Dining Organizers is a new product um, from the Net New Organizing Institute, which is all for progressive online activists. What they do is they provide content via their web channels that people can then have dinner parties and talk about. One Sky is a great environmental um, nonprofit, and what they do is they have curricula almost, and they use their online organizing tools to identify precinct captains in various areas all over the country who, again, take it offline. Meetup.com, which you probably all know as like a weird place for ferret lovers and Wicca and <laughs> Howard Dean is actually, <laughs> actually um, meetup.com is so powerful and Oprah, you know, Oprah's launching her new network. She just did a deal with Meetup to start Oprah Meetups all over the country. Right? And if you're a parent, you are you belong to a meetup group. 
So I want to target moms because I want them to go vote. Why not buy a cheap sponsorship on Meetup? Why not figure out how I can reach them through Meetup? Because to be honest, we all have friends online, but our, our relationships offline are more powerful because we're human. So how can you use the internet to reach people offline? That is the new frontier. All kinds of free mobilizing tools. Obviously Facebook is a big event planning tool. Um, You can use Google Calendar, you can use Meetup, you can use Facebook, there's a website called upcoming.com, and always use your email list. But always think about how to get people to meet in the flesh and really care about you. And that's it. I'm just going to finish with these are some good sites just to mouse around on. Um, Mashable.com is a great blog for everything with social media. Mashable, M-A-S-H-A-B-L-E. I would just um, look around and see, you know, what are the best sites writing about issues of social media. There's so much out there. Again, slideshare.net has a lot of great presentations about this stuff. ePolitics is pretty good. M10 is all for technology and nonprofits. Neworganizing.com is all about online organizing. Personal, Personal Democracy Forum is all about online politics, and they have a great um, guide on who to hire in this space if you do have the money to hire a web vendor. They, they put out a, a report that's pretty helpful. So again, use the internet to learn. There's this website, Tech President or something? Tech President is part of Personal Democracy Forum. <coughs> it's a blog. Excuse me, can just go back to that? Sure, please. Thank you. But we will get this presentation. Yeah, it's up online. Mm -hmm. On the web? It's on um, I can um, I can send out the link or, or Allison can send out the link. Um, do we have a email <laughs> list of people who are in this room. We're not we're not practicing what we preach. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Let's pass it around. Any of you who would like to get yeah. this list or whatever the link, uh, we'll send it to you if you will put your name on an email list that we'll sort of pass it. <laughs> right there. Print. Print. Um, and then I just I just wanted to say this because I, as a person who's now in her mid-30s, um, I find when I work with clients that um, it's often, the social media tasks are often delegated down the food chain in an organization to interns or very young junior staffers. And that's my personal pet peeve. I think this stuff is so important. It's such an important thing to invest in. It requires strategy and knowledge and a seat at the grown-ups table. So if you're starting an organization, please don't give your social media program short shrift. Pay attention to it. That doesn't mean that if you're the CEO, you need to be tweeting everything. Or if you're, you're managing a candidate, that they should be actually tweeting. That's probably not a good use of their time. But do really pay attention and care about this, because it's important and it will pay off. Oh, no, no, no. Don't underestimate their knowledge, though, because, you know, if you're 50 and you're starting an organization and you have, you know, someone who's a digital native, take advantage of their wealth. But pay attention. Don't ignore it. So I guess we have some time for questions. Um, I guess I'll Okay. I was told that it should go until around 15, but and as long as people are interested, should keep feeling so I have one question, if you could probably elaborate some one or two minutes more on the challenge. You already mentioned that you this one project where this 100-year-old organization, they finally decided 
going digital, like the challenges that when you don't really start an organization, but when you basically are face the facing the challenge of starting the online branch or basically the first step into the digital world of an older or a grown-up organization, besides just having a homepage. Right. <laughs> um, you know, again, I would I would bring it back to the organization's larger goals. To Nicole's point, we get all the time. Well, we have to be on Facebook. Well, why do you have to be on Facebook? Who are you trying to reach? So really think strategically about what are the goals for the organization this year and how can I use my web program to reach them? And so again, if it's tied to very hardcore metrics like I want to sell more product or I want to raise more money, that might require one approach. If it's just really a hearts and flowers, we want people to know us approach, that's very different. And again, I would always look at what your competitors are doing and what people you respect are doing and figure it out. Um, and hire good people. You know, really really get people who are good thinkers in this space and help them inform you. Um, yeah, but tie it back to your overall goals. Don't just do it just to do it. Which is hard. Uh, uh, when do you do a rebranding? Let's say you have an existing brand and you suffered some negative uh, or issues, but is it wise to rebrand or stick on it then probably overcome the need? When do you yeah. I mean, I'd say there's no, It's I, I hate to keep hearing like, well, it all depends, but it, that is a little bit of it, it depends answer. And, you know, I think there's sort of the cynical approach to rebranding, which is that people occasionally rebrand because there's associations with their brand that they don't like anymore, and they're trying to almost trick you into thinking it's something different by putting a new shell on it. I'm assuming that's not the case we're talking about here. Um, I would say in general, you know, brands get outdated because the, the images associated with them, the language gets outdated just because time passes and things change. And so one of the reasons people typically rebrand is they feel like their donor base has grown stale, like they've had followers and supporters for a while and those people are getting older, they need to bring in a new generation of supporters and so they want sort of a new face for the organization. I mean, there, there's sort of a sort of, you see it, you know it when you see it principle to this too, which is that you do go to websites on occasion and you just look at them and it looks like something that was created in 1996, right? And so there is just an element of, does it look current, does it look modern that drives people to, to rebrand? But I would say that the, the third and final reason people typically do it is if they're introducing a sort of new product or if they're introducing a new program and it's not what that program or that new product is about isn't really reflected in the existing brand. You don't really want to plug a new program into an existing organization and not change anything else because it's going to be hard to get people's attention. So rebranding is kind of a coming out party for an organization. Like here, it's my new, here's my new thing. So here's a new look and you know, the the to mixed results, Democrats just did a rebranding. I don't know if you all saw the Democrats. You have Democrats.org now. They they decided that no, that you know, there, there's there's an enthusiasm gap, and it's time for them to have a new brand. So they hired a firm, and I, I'm personally not a big fan of all of it, but they they hired a new firm. They created a new logo for them and a new look, and it's all about sort of trying to convince young Democrats that like we're not the the unenthusiastic. Uh, party that people think we are, essentially. So there's a lot of different reasons to do those are just a few. People are very sophisticated, though. I mean, one of the byproducts, I think, of the digital age is that uh, consumers are more sophisticated than ever, and so they can smell a rat. I mean, look what happened when VP tried to read it. Right. 
Who okay. means fooled? Everybody knows Alt. You know, mo most people know Altria wasn't Altria ten years ago. It was. You know, they know. They know. They still have the cigarette association with uh, Phil Morris. Uh, Phil Morris. Well, I mean, I, I'd say also it's always like you start with what you want to do and then you create a strategy from there. Depends always on what your goals are. websites, I'm assuming message boards or places with blogs where there's really nasty commentary that you don't want any part of and, and how to get out of that situation. This is why I'm such a fan of the platform and channels approach. Again, why, why necessarily try to create your own social network when, as we all know, Facebook has 500 million friends? Go to where people are and then make sure know that you drive them back to your website to experience your content but if you have a nasty message board shut it down I mean that's not helping anyone and it's certainly not helping you maybe look at placing blogs articles op-eds on other popular sites get out there to where people are and don't let people mess up your house because your website is your house it's your living room you wouldn't let someone come and graffiti in your living room. Why would you let that happen on your website? But but your Facebook page is also your house. It's it's, it's also all the comments. It's also totally associated to your place. And no matter what where you post it, and which it's always like the comment in your domain. So I don't know if that really solves the problem. It doesn't. I mean, the web is nasty. I mean, that's that's like that's the truth, right? There's no you, the web is not a nice place to be. So you just have to be very vigilant about monitoring it. Um, I had that when I started my company. I was going to have this like every day. I was going to post something amazing that a woman blogger was doing, and I was going to be all you know, like recognizing all these women online. And I got all of these horrible companies and people spamming me and using my Facebook page to sell God knows what with women, and it just it was a failed experiment. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, you mentioned Constant Contact as one example of a uh, bulk email. And I don't know if people know, but Constant Contact does allow for free accounts if you're sponsored by someone with a paying account and if you work with children specifically. Um, I didn't know if you could recommend like <coughs> top three social media things. I know we've talked about kind of Twitter, Facebook, um, but if there are any things like that that you might recommend. Wikipedia? Wikipedia. <laughs> And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with starting a free WordPress site. Um, it's all free, really. But, I mean, that's, that's it requires, the, the trade-off is, is your personal time and resources. And being, and being limited, I mean, by lack of functionality or lack of customization, but it's all free. But, like, in terms of maybe, like, web design tools? 
I mean, maybe that's like um, web design tools. The graphic design, unfortunately, has to be done by a person. But I'm sure that but there are grants that you can apply for. In fact, doesn't Fenton have a grant? We have so for social media. Places yeah. like N10. Um, if you want to give me your email, there's a lot of organizations actually um, that are devoted to helping nonprofits get nonprofits get free resources. Actually, there's one thing before anyone goes that you should know, which is the Progressive Exchange. Do you know about this? Yeah. It's a listserv. I'm sure you know that. Are you on it? It's um, a fabulous, fabulous listserv. Um, anyone can join, but you do have to get permission in. Just go to um, Google Progressive Exchange or progx.org. Yes, I will. Because if you're like you could blast that out, and ten people would come back and say, "Here's a resource." Progx. Just Google Progressive Exchange. I'm pretty sure you'll find it. It's a uh, social media bigger question um, because you guys are all young. You use this stuff all the time. You grew up with it. Is there a is there a, a cutoff at age where you find that you have to? I know a lot of people who don't Twitter, <laughs> uh, you know, or... Most people don't Twitter. Probably 5% of the entire population in the U.S. Twitters. That doesn't matter because they're influential, right? So, but everyone's on Twitter. I mean, I, I've worked with a lot of boomer clients and... Um, Actually, women over 45 are the fastest growing segment on, on Facebook. Right. Yeah, okay. My mom's my Facebook friend. Yeah. <laughs> my grandma's okay. not. She was after. It's a wave of the future that everyone's got to jump on. Well, it's what works for you. If you like it, use it. And if you, I mean, it, again, it's like it's it's a kind of a pick and mix. I mean, you're finding that. Older Absolutely. people. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you recognize? Wrap up. Wrap up now, yeah. And I'm going to wrap up. Now, yeah. And, and I'm going to wrap up. So we'd like to thank you again for letting me in. So you're going to send around. Y